0: every cell in our body is capable of adapting so i think sometimes when we do get low and we lose a bit of hope and and uh and and vision for the future because of our physical health it's good to remind ourselves of that every cell can adapt it's such a powerful message so Mm. let's not let our minds limit what our physiology is able to
1: do how do we become our best and live a life of meaning and purpose
2: In a world where the constant focus is on fixing what's wrong with us, we want to highlight what is right and good about you to help you live out your best every day. Hi, I'm Eloise Wellings.
1: And I'm Rory Darkins. And this is What's Right Within. Hello and welcome back. Or if it's your first time with us today, welcome to What's Right Within. Today we are joined by Brad Beer. Uh, you, many of you may know Brad as the host of the Physical Performance Show, a great podcast that Eloise has been a guest on and I've also had the pleasure of being on um, more recently as well. Um, Brad is a, an expert in the field of physical health. He has a physio practice, pogo physio which is physio with a finish line, which we love that. Like how, how good is actually having physio with a finish line rather than, <laughs> than an endless. Um,
2: eternity physio. For
1: eternity <laughs> eternity Eternal physio. physio. That's right. And, you know, Brad um, has so much wisdom to share with us about how we can optimize physical health and well-being. And he's also quite the athlete himself. So really looking forward to digging into this episode with Brad Bear. you going Brad? Yeah thanks guys Uh, that was quite the intro.
2: (laughs) (laughs) You were an aspiring athlete before you were a physio. Tell us about your journey in sport growing up.
0: Yeah thanks Uh, Elsie and Rory. um, I never really had two career pathways in mind physio or triathlon so my imagination was captured by the Australian domestic triathlon series, the old two is blue triathlon series that then became, uh, what was the next iteration, the next sponsor uh, St. George triathlon series and then extension triathlon series. And uh, I was doing a, it's okay across country at school uh, at a school level. And a mate of mine uh, was swimming and he said, you should start swim training. And then this whole triathlon thing exploded in Australia in the nineties. And I thought, wow, that looks kind of cool. So I remember borrowing a bike, uh, off a cyclist at our high school. Uh, I was about 10 or 11 years, seven and, uh, entering the Woolgulga Junior Triathlon, uh, which I think was a 300 meter ocean swim, 2k ride, and maybe, I don't know, 500 meter run and, uh, enjoyed it and, uh, got the bug from there. And so then I just threw myself head and tail into this world of triathlon and, uh, Pretty much did that right through my school years for 10 years. Uh, and in my final year at school and the Australian schoolboys, I had a fairly decent bike crash at Penrith at the uh, Rowing Regatta Centre during this, the National Schoolboys race and ended up with a brain hemorrhage and some pretty decent uh, fractures and traumatic injuries, wow. which at the time at 18, I thought weren't too concerning. But uh, the year or two afterwards sort of show that I had a bit to work through. But looking back, I can probably see it was more my psychology than my physiology that took me off course with where I went from there.
1: That's that's interesting, Brad. And, you know, um, knowing us that we're really interested in, in the psychology of that. Um, tell us a little bit more about what you mean and, and what you found with you know the challenges and being an aspiring athlete um, and, you know, the, the psychological side of that.
0: Yeah, Rory, I think looking back, I can see how anxious I was as an athlete. I used to, you know, be almost vomiting on a start line of of any race that I felt was of higher importance than a local race, you know, like a state titles or a national titles. And I would almost feel so weak, I could barely get on the start line. It was almost like torture. I wasn't Mm -hmm. enjoying it. I was enjoying the results if they came, but, and I... And really, I don't don't know, as a teenager, you don't have the mindset to really dig into that. And certainly in the 90s, there wasn't sort of the talk around, you know, that much as an athlete's psychology that that I could see. I remember picking up a book, uh, what was it called? Sports Mind by Jeffrey Hodges and thinking, I do need help with my head. I didn't know what. (laughs) (laughs) And I remember doing the exercises in it and there were little things to do and I was pretty discipline so i'd work through those and i remember at that schoolboys race, race was one of the first times i stood on the start line excited to race rather than um actually terrified of you know of um of what would happen so i think i was helping myself in some way but then i think anxiety just overrode it where i look back now i turned 40 recently i actually think i went through like a mini crisis where i did look back and go i feel really unfulfilled with whatever I may or may not have had athletically in endurance sports, draft on cycling, because I never explored it. And my big disappointment was in full was I think anxiety took me off course. Mm. I started uni, I had injuries and I thought I've missed it now. Other athletes that I'm going through with are still competing. I've missed a year. I'll be no one now in that world, you know? So it's quite short-sighted.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I think that's a really common experience, Brad, um, you know, and I think it's so important for our listeners, you know, that so much of this podcast is about how do we explore our potential and part of that conversation needs to be an awareness around what can take us off course from being able to explore potential. And so in that light, the anxiety seems to have been, you know, obviously what you felt and that sort of unbearable feeling on the start line was, was something that you felt derailed your athletic um, pursuits with that how much of that do you feel like came from having your sense of identity and, and value as a as a person connected to the performance or the outcome that you were about to you know the, or the result you you're about to achieve or not achieve
0: yeah I think it's i think it, you know sadly as a teenager that was who I was and you know, I was in a small country town grafton great place to grow up you know, the local newspaper would write stories, you know, because they'd get behind their sports people. And, uh, you know, in my mind, that's who I was. That was who I was going to be. And that's, you know, that was absolutely 100%, uh, sadly, my identity. And when it stopped headbanging with these injuries and literally couldn't train, couldn't continue on that pathway. And that year, I had my first junior elite selection to race, you know, nationals and then hopefully carry on the world champs. Uh, I couldn't because of the, the accident. And I remember going for a walk late at night. I was about 18 and doing this really big walk around where I grew up. It was probably, I don't know, an eight, 10 K walk, which is seems like quite a walk in the dark at midnight, Just sinking, looking up at the stars going, you know, what's the point of living? You know, I, I didn't have anything planned beyond that in terms of any like commit suicide or anything, but I was going, what do you do now? And so that was, I think, and then I had a really tough year after that. Psychologically I was at school finishing it and just felt like a wreck. And then you just roll onto the next thing, which happened to be uni. Yeah. <laughs> and that's just a distraction that then takes focus, takes you on for what five or six years.
1: Yeah. And this is something that I just don't think is talked about enough because um, what you're describing in terms of who you are being wrapped up in, in what you did and then having something like an injury that forces you out of that or you know even if it's poor performances force you out of kind of getting the validation from um in terms of who you are from what you've achieved that there, there's a real consequence to that and as particularly with, with young people you know teenagers we're developing our identity and that's why this conversation is so important for um people as they're developing is because the the when you, it's called identity foreclosure, when your identity does become wrapped up in in what you do. And there's no way that if all of your external validation as a teenager is coming from, you know, the one activity, Mm -hmm. there's no way that you're not going to start to attach your sense of worth to how you go in that. And this links into, you know, a conversation you and i had on your podcast about obsessive versus harmonious passion um and for those you know just to clarify those terms harmonious passion is where what you do is important to you you love it but it's a part of it's a part of your identity but it's not um controlling you so your activity your engagement in the activity doesn't control you And obsessive passion is where it's all those same things but your the activity is actually driving you. Like it's almost like a compulsive thing. And if we're for developing athletes, if your source of worth comes from one place, then it's going to be more likely to develop that into an obsessive passion where you feel like you have to do that activity in order to feel good about yourself. And that's like the. Just psychologically makes sense it's not you know anything wrong with the individual to go Mm -hmm. into that trap Mm -hmm. Um, which is why i say this is an important conversation that well how do we help young athletes or young people to develop a a solid identity in terms of knowing their worth as a person independent of what they do so that they have the flexibility to engage in activities that interest them, but also be okay when they can't engage in those activities or when they want to change. Um, And so like on that note, just for anyone listening, I just want to say that that's the value in having a broad range of um, activities and interests that you're actually curious about exploring, because when suddenly you can't do one, you've got these other sources of passion that you can, find engaging and you can immerse yourself in. And that is somewhat protective about against your identity becoming sort of foreclosed or kind of wrapped up in just one single thing. It can be more spread. You can find, you can be yourself in lots of different areas and lots of different ways and it helps people to build that belief system about actually I'm me mm. and I do all these different things mm-hmm. or I can be me and do all these different things. I'm not only me in this one narrow area.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it's so true. I think if you try and express yourself in just one activity and then that activity is taken away, obviously that there will be there's a consequence of that psychologically.
1: Yeah, big time. Um and Brad, on that on that note, um you are now a uh, a physiotherapist. You work with some of the world's best athletes and and people from all walks of life. Do you where do you see this show up in your in your work now like with people when they're injured and you know do you find that passion harmonious passion obsessive passion actually kind of influences outcomes with rehab and injury
0: yeah definitely and uh it's a great question rory because it, i feel quite at home in this professional work that i do not because of any knowledge i do or don't have but because of the experiences I've personally lived through where you actually feel like you can impart a bit of guidance and more than just head knowledge to people. So I find whether it's a recreational or com- recreationally competitive or an elite athlete, there's, it's, it's often those passions that could be obsessive that drive a lot of the performance. And when it comes crashing down because of injury, uh, I'm often more worried about their psychology than their physiology because physiologically they're going to get there every time after injury, but it's how well they get there that's often the greater burden. Um, so I think my experiences did give me a sensitivity to that, which I think people have to vary in levels, but uh, I think I'm pretty attuned to it, uh, which I think helps.
2: Yeah, and, and I mean that's something that I personally, working with you over the last few years, Brad, um, something that I've really valued about you is that you do understand that emotional side and that um, you know the, the 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 state that you're um, that you go into psychologically when you do when you know you've got an injury that you've got to you know either stop um, your sport for or back off from. Um, and that obviously has a whole lot of consequences, um, in, including fitness and, you know, making teams and, you know, financially and, and all of these things. And I think, um, for you having your experience as an athlete growing up and, and, and going through those, those hard experiences, you can really tell, um, you as a professional physiotherapist now, you are so in tune and so engaged, um, with that emotional side and with being able to help athletes, um, through that initially, especially in that initial kind of panic station stage where, you know, you, you've, you've got something going on, you've got a niggly and you've got a big race coming up. Um, you know, just trying to, um, work out, uh, what's going on with it. And just kind of logically, sometimes that doesn't work. I think some of the best, um, well, the your best trait is is being so in tune like that emotionally and in tune um, psychologically what what's your advice to people who who are injured who who are struggling with a niggling injury or who have just found out that they've got an injury that they've that they've got to stop for
0: yeah thanks Elsie. Uh, I think sometimes maybe the first thing to say would be whether it's a recreationally competitive, novice, beginner, you know, whatever the standard of athlete or whoever it values being physically active, right? If they get injured, I think there's a sense that they feel that they shouldn't be upset by it because there's a bigger problem in the world. And because they know that there's someone that, you know, is, is dealing with a life-threatening illness. And, and I often find people are embarrassed that they are feeling as low as they are sometimes when they get injured. So I think The first step would be just acknowledging that those feelings that you have when you get injured um, are normal and they're not to be hidden. So uh, I think that can give people some comfort like, okay, that's normal. Just let the disappointment sink in, but then also don't lose sight of the fact that you're going to bounce back from this. So it's that early acknowledgement of the feelings followed by reassurance Mm. of uh, quickly reassuring people that they're going to get back on their feet and then that's just the the in-betweens that acknowledgement and reassurance is the diagnosis and figuring out the plan and that's just the the skill stuff but it's actually I think those two bookends that make the biggest difference acknowledgement and then reassurance Mm. so advice would be get an accurate diagnosis so you can get uh, from acknowledging your feelings to reassurance about your outcome as soon as possible
1: yeah, that's great, and you know what I hear in that, Brad, is um, realistic optimism. Yeah, which you know I think we can be a bit sort of one extreme or the other with with this sometimes in terms of like woe is me and it's never going to get better to like almost um, ignoring the reality of what's actually happening and not not on- honoring the feelings and not honoring you know the, the adjustments you need to make, and so the concept of realistic optimism, which I, I see as a realistic assessment of the present moment with the belief that things can get better as is, is so in line, I think, with what you're saying there that it's like take stock of the reality of the moment of the emotion and the, you know, the, the psychology and the physiology, get really accurate and in touch with that. But then don't let the reality of that moment, um, cloud your view of what the future could be in mm. terms of it actually can get better and there are steps that you can take to move toward you know it getting better yeah perfect Oh,
0: yep and that you see people's mood change pretty quickly when they do get that reassurance you know Mm. they can be pretty low and then it's like yep okay it's going to be this many weeks and this is the way we're going to get there and uh i think reassurance is sometimes the greatest uh tool that a practitioner has in healthcare mm. anyway.
2: Yeah, it's so true. And something that you're so gifted at, Brad, I think having that reassurance gives you the ability as well um, as an athlete to start thinking clear and to start strategizing a way forward um, rather than just kind of sitting, sitting in that disappointment and sitting in, you know, in that acknowledgement, then obviously the the diagnosis and the reassurance um, following that gives you the ability to start having hope for the future and start, um, you know, coming up with a plan. And for me, it's always been, all right, I've, I'm going to have three or six weeks out. Um, I, I'm going to come up with a cross training plan and I'm going to come, I'm going to be the fittest that I've ever been after a six week injury. And, um, you know, that's, that's always my goal. And setting new little goals like that is is so important along the way. And, grateful um to have you um help me set those Brad um what you know you've you've worked with some of you know the world's best athletes you work with some incredible weekend warriors that have their own in, you know amazing journey um of their own what what makes your work so rewarding
0: that's a brilliant question it's it's seeing the outcomes hopefully arrived at just seeing people maximize their potential. Uh, And obviously I'm working in the physical space, but that flows over to so many aspects of their life. So whether it's the, you know, first time half marathoner or 5k or marathoner or the Olympic athlete qualifying for a team or whatever it is, it's, it's still meaningful to the individual. So there's no triaging or hierarchy around one being more, satisfying it's it's always gratifying and um if it ever stops being gratifying i think that's a bit of a red flag for for the professional career but uh we call it at the clinic at pogo physio we have a bit of fun with it because we want it to be meaningful and we do call it the physio finish line and it's an in de- inbuilt belief in myself that everyone deserves a finish line to their rehab mm. it shouldn't be a never-ending ongoing cycle like not we can have repeat injuries of course but there should be a full stop to everyone's injury and Mm -hmm. i think that mindset if we can get that understanding uh delivered to people early in their injury process or rehabilitation process that's reassuring in in and of itself and they can look forwards to that we call it the Mm -hmm. finish line moment high five we love you but you're done
1: (laughs) yeah (laughs) love it love it and um on a related note brad um what What role does mindset play for individuals who are experiencing injury? So are there things that you see in people who adapt well to the process of, you know, an unexpected setback and and people that are able to navigate that um, in a more positive way and and kind of make that a, a more positive experience? Like are there attributes that you see or kind of mental skills that you see at play there for people? It's a really good question. Um, Rory, I think
0: mindset for injury and and adapting. Well, I I think prior experience is a big one. So when an individual has been through maybe episodes of the same injury or, uh, you know, have had a similar magnitude injury in the past and they've come back then that obviously, uh, gives them the comfort of knowing that they will get there. Uh, Sometimes that can not be the case. Recurring episodes can rob people of confidence mm. uh, at times. So I think prior experience would be definitely uh, one sort of a characteristic of, of, of dealing well with injury psychologically uh, or gearing people up to deal well, well with it psychologically. Mm. I think this, this. we all know there's different personalities. Some personalities are a bit more... Uh, I don't know if it's personality, but some people are a bit more robust. You know, they're just it's like you know that you can throw a fair bit at people. That's their capacity, which is a bit bigger than others. Yeah. So I think that definitely helps having a bigger reservoir to draw from. I think Here's what I found. people's like purpose, their driving. Why are they doing it? Like that becomes a big factor when people are clear on the outcome. Mm-hmm. Uh, then their tolerance to work through the inevitable ups and downs of any rehabilitation process are just smoothed out. or it's just mm. increased. Um, and I'd have to think a bit deeper, but they'd probably be the mm. surface level ones, Rory.
1: Yeah, that's great. And I'm particularly struck by what you said about the purpose um, side of that and the knowing why you're doing it. Like, you know, I'm, I'm certainly thinking from a psychological lens. You know, when when our purpose is clear, we it's so much easier to persevere towards and through difficulty and, and navigate challenges and find new ways. So, um, on that note, like how, what sort of what sort of purposes or what sort of drivers do you see um, in you know people who do adjust well? Like, are they driven by um, becoming their best or are there sort of th- any themes that you can think of um, around what really drives people that, at that deeper level that helps them to to navigate it well
0: I think one of the obvious ones is is it internally driven or externally driven that uh, you know the drive and the external ones you sometimes see in junior developing athletes where you can almost smell it there's just this disconnect between what they're after and sometimes their behaviors and attitudes and even the words that they'll use um, there's often parental pressures or coaching pressures that it just becomes this disconnected sort of inevitable, almost time bomb, sadly, Mm -hmm. where at some point you often hear that that individual's dropped out of sport. So I think the external pressures versus the individual being internally driven. So whether it is that PB, or it's just the satisfaction of taking part in an event or, I've had people over the years, and I, know I mentioned it when we were recording together, Rory, uh, who have wanted to participate in sport because they would lost a child, and that was the way of honouring, you know, uh, uh, their child that they lost. You know, that always sticks out as something over the years. Um, so I think it's that's a big factor—is it internally or externally being driven? And mm-hmm. the internally driven people invariably tend to do better with their rehabilitation
1: yeah that's that's great and i think practically what that gives us is you know um a great question to to ask about you know our physical health and performance related goals or aspirations is connecting with well why is this important to me like why is it important to me to achieve this goal that i might have set myself on my new year's resolution or you know are uh, the anything health related I think when we can tap into that deeper level of motivation that's intrinsic and and really get to get clarity on the reason why that's important simply by asking like why is that important and you can ask that question a few times because the first answer might be still a little surface level you can ask the question of that answer and say yeah but why is that important to then kind of get to the center of all right this is what it's really all about Mm -hmm. Um, and I think you know certainly i I tend to work with a few athletes who, um, when they're injured as well. And what I notice is that the purpose is, the purpose remains the same. The path forward toward that might look different one week to the next week. So what you're practically doing may be completely different one week to the next, because suddenly, so you can't run and you have to cross train or swim or do something, but. You're doing it for the exact same reason, even though it's a completely different activity, and so connecting with that deeper reason can help you to to almost feel more alive and more motivated, knowing that there's a clear why behind what you're about, and it is moving you forward, even though it it seems like a setback.
0: Yeah, that's a um, it's it's that's powerful, Rory. I've, I think we need to change our patient intake forms at the clinic into having, why is it important to you? What The reason that you've stated that you come in. Uh, We do ask that in the rooms and it's something I've reinforced to graduates across the 14 years I've been doing this work um, that people don't come because they're in pain. (laughs) That's not the reason. Mm. Uh, Of course, physical pain can be a driver, but it's, it's those, as you say, Rory, those deeper drivers that bring people in. I often am amazed. People drive to a physio clinic in pain They pay for the experience uh, and we lose sight of the fact that there's a reason they're doing that. They're not coming because they can't put up with neck pain or a sore shoulder or a sore leg. They're coming because it's interfering with something in their life that's meaningful to them. So until we're clear as practitioners on what that is and why that's then important to them, we're really probably best not to even start the journey. So I think what you just shared, I really relate with.
2: Mm. Mm. Awesome. Brad there's, uh, there's a lot of people working uh, working from home at the moment. What's your advice on how to look after your physical health when you're working from home?
0: Yeah, great. Um, I don't know how pe- people do quarantine. <laughs> that's the <my laughs> first comment.
2: I'm so impressed with some of the tennis players and how, um, how creative <laughs> they are being with in the lead up to the Australian <laughs> Open. I'm like amazed at what, oh, what they're g- doing.
0: Oh, gosh, I yeah, I don't let myself think about it too much because it creates a bit of anxiety about how would I deal with it if I had to. I honestly <laughs> don't know. Um, that's not working from home, but I guess some people work from the hotel. Elsie, uh, I think it's been interesting, the whole COVID experience as a clinician in my work, because there's been some people that it's had a negative effect on their health with, but then there's been plenty of others that working from home has allowed them the margin to go for that extra run or walk or go to the gym when they never might've been able to get to the gym. Yeah. So it's been interesting. I'd probably say there's more people that have benefited health wise from working from home than have suffered. But um, in terms of ergonomics and desk setups and things, people can make a lot of noise about the perfect setup. I don't think it has to be that complicated. It's, it's not normally the uh, in my opinion, it's not normally the angle of the computer screen or the height of the desk that matters too much. It's more the body's ability to adapt to that load. So if we've gone from standing up at work to all of a sudden sitting down for 30 hours a week, then there's going to be an adaptation period to that that may require a bit of strength work to you know help someone. So maybe, hopefully, that's reassuring to people. Um, don't get too lost in details if you're worried about how you, you, your office setup is there's some general principles, but generally if you're mixing up a bit of standing and sitting and having regular breaks, it doesn't need to be any more complicated than that in most instances. And if you're sitting for three hours, of course, you're going to feel a bit stiff if you're staring at a screen.
1: Yeah. I I love what you said there about um, having breaks. And I saw you, you, you're a lot more the expert in this than I am. I just saw some research um, really briefly about the frequency of, Um, moving so basically not staying in the same position too long as opposed to worrying about being in the perfect position um what like if we are to can you speak about that research around like you know moving regularly but then also how do we what sort of movement might we look to do in those mini breaks during the day
0: yeah i don't know the exact research that you're referencing there rory but There's this, it's almost corny adage, but I I like it because it sticks and it's your your best movement or sorry, your best posture is your next posture. Mm. So in other words, just don't get stuck anywhere for too long Um, because there's this still really deeply ingrained thought myth that people subscribe to no fault of their own. That's that there's this perfect posture that we all have to carry ourselves some certain way. And I even graduated with that mindset, but don't, believe that to be the case anymore it's more about you know Mm. continuing to move and and adapt to whatever your day demands but um in terms of like exercises uh without you know speaking to any individual circumstances just general things we all lose strength from 30 to 60 years it's about 30 percent of strength loss that we all experience so i I find that strength deficits are people's greatest liability physically Mm. so you can do it from a home office, home um, work point of view, simple things like calf raises, you know, just up and down on the toes. If someone enjoys running, they can aim for 25. If someone's not a runner, they might aim for 20 or 15. Mm-hmm. Um, so basic things like calf raises, calf raises, sorry. Uh, I mean, squats, everyone's friend and foe, but I mean, <laughs> who, do- who doesn't who does benefit from a good squat? Yeah. Uh, so it could be a good squat. There's some utility in, uh, in sitting in sort of, if you like, it's not scientific per se, but opening up the front of the hip from long periods of sitting. So for that, I much prefer prescribing a something like a Bulgarian split squat, which is simply putting a foot up on a chair behind someone and the other foot's out in front and just squatting up and down. That mm-hmm. tends to strength, strengthen the legs, but it also has a, a nice eccentric, if you like, Lengthening and strengthening effect on the quads and hip flexors. So we all see a lot of people pulling heels to their bottom, you know, stretching out the front of their legs, and
2: yeah.
0: it may help to a degree. But something like a Bulgarian split squat would likely get better results uh, mm-hmm. if people are sitting a lot and want to stretch out their hips. So a few Bulgarian split squats, a couple of calf ra- uh, raises, and and uh, the world's your oyster. <laughs>
1: yeah great what's cool about that particularly and speaking of sort of myths that maybe get circulated a little bit in popular opinion is like you don't need to go to the gym for any of those and you know like i enjoy weight training i enjoy going to the gym but like you do not have to leave your house to strengthen your body right
0: exactly there's a lot that can be done limited by imagination the only uh add on to that Rory would be it's only when people's demands get to a certain level so what they do in their day or week that then you start to perhaps require that higher level of strength and conditioning such as in the environment of a gym but if the daily demands are um, you know going for a walk uh, walking the dog working from the home office there's no excessive sporting pursuits then yeah most people should be just fine
1: with a a bit of a a body weight routine around home. Yeah. Awesome. Um, and for, for those that are interested in running, um, because I know many Mm -hmm. of our listeners are interested and, um, you know, you've got sort of special expertise in working with runners and you're a runner yourself. Um, what's, what's the kind of guidance around surface because you know, is we can run out the door and run along the road. We can go to the athletics track. We can run on a, a, on the grass or on the sand. Like, are you able to give us some sort of guiding principles about how we might think about where to do our running?
0: Yeah, it's a it's a great question, and uh, we we're talking about myths, and there is that sort of myth that if we run on a softer surface, it must be in some way better for us as runners, less injurious less load, etc. cetera. But science is actually quite interesting and opposite to, to mythology, if you like. And, uh, and, and that is that, well, firstly, our body adapts. So there's a le- level of stiffness in our lower limbs that we, we need to get propulsion. And, and our central nervous system, driven by the brain and spinal cord and all the receptors through our body, they determine what surface we're running on. So it's, it's kind of cool. You could be blindfolded and run on three different surfaces and your leg stiffness will modulate itself. There's no conscious control of that. So, so if you're running on a hard surface, that stiffness in the leg will be, uh, changed. If you're running on a soft surface, it'll be changed. But where it becomes interesting is I'd much prefer people returning from running injuries to be on, a firm surface such as asphalt or a road um, then the characteristically sought after grass or yeah um, you know or dirt trail or something like that so uh, and the reason for that it has to do with the the leg stiffness modulation so uh, if you are and the main injuries that runners have are tendons or bones uh, there's joint stuff in there as well but when it comes to uh, things like tendons, uh, the firmer surface is definitely better because there's less elongation of the tend of the structure, of the tendon mm. that might become provocative. So, I'll try not to get too geeky there, but hopefully that <laughs> geek out on geek, us So good, <laughs> we're, we're leaning in. Yeah. Uh, so, and then when it comes to uh, bone stress injuries. Uh, so on the tendon side of things, and another myth is that treadmills would be softer and more accommodating because by nature, they tend to look a bit more cushiony than <laughs> yeah. something like the road. But then if you look at the science at the Achilles tendon, there's, for example, like a, a 14% increase in Achilles tendon loads running on treadmills. Right. So if someone's rehab, rehabbing or coming back or working through, I should say, an Achilles tendinopathy or Achilles injury, probably want to minimize your time on a treadmill. Right, or very judiciously add it back in. Yeah. So, so it's not as simple as softer surfaces are better. The other caveat is the master's athlete, which the definition is quite harsh, is 35 plus. <laughs> um, the uh, master's athlete, we all lose calf strength and size and propulsive power and we have elongation of our Achilles tendon. So it becomes more compliant or less able to be stiff so, if right. we think of, and I remember uh, at the Commonwealth Games in 2018, uh, doing some volunteer physio work, and Elsie, you were floating around the track, uh, and <laughs> Johan Blake was walking, uh, doing his walk backs, run through, sprint warm ups, and Johan Blake, obviously one of the world's greatest sprinters. And I, I actually it was only then that the penny dropped that I used to watch, and Elsie, you would have seen this tenfold times more than Rory and I, but the elite sprinters walking around. And I used to think that they all just had the strut. They were all strutting because they're (laughs) fastest people on earth. And, uh, and then it dawned on me that there might be a bit of gamesmanship that they are strutting, but the other part of it is that their Achilles tendons are so stiff and so wound up, which is obviously largely why they're so successful at sprinting
1: that they can't help but walk on their
0: toes and strut. (laughs) So if you think of the extreme of these elite sprinters that walk on their toes, and then you think of a master's athlete, as we mature, that stiffness just becomes a little bit less. So in terms of a master's athlete, getting back on track running on a soft surface, such as sand or grass, you can absolutely heighten the risk of upsetting calves and straining calves. If if a master's runner goes back onto soft
1: surfaces Mm -hmm. without enough strength in their calves. That's fascinating and and somewhat counterintuitive too, right? We know a lot of people personally have had stress fractures and and injuries like that. And there can be some sort of weariness around running on the road or running on a harder surface when there's been a bone stress injury. And you are saying that actually the harder surface is preferable for um, for uh, returning from injuries of those types and and even preventing injuries of those types, if I've heard you correctly. Can you just explain how that works?
0: Yeah, it's not so much that it might be preferable because sometimes all that people will have is what's outside their doorway. Um, yeah. But and definitely on the soft tissue injury side of things, the softer surfaces can present uh, an injury risk. And when it comes to returning from bone issues or bone uh, injuries, we need to keep in mind that One, the body will self-modulate depending on the surface. But two, when we run, irrespective of surface, there's there's huge forces produced by our propulsive muscles in our lower limbs, which create really big internal loads on our bones. And this doesn't mean running is not safe for us. We all know running is safe and and a great thing to do. But for example, in the shin, it might be six to 14 times body weight uh, Mm. of, of, of internal load generated at the, uh, the shin bone. So when it comes to surface selection, uh, one consideration with the softer surfaces for bone is there is greater impulse, which means contact time with the ground. So there's a potential that greater impulse or contact time with the ground means greater muscle force developed and greater pressure on the bone. Mm. So a safer passage is to put someone onto a firmer surface than a soft surface, which carries over with the comments I made about the, returning from tendon injuries and trying to minimize things like calf strains
2: yeah it's so much counter to what we've always what what I've always been told from um, medical practitioners I was obsessive when I was younger about running on grass and soft surfaces and I got 10 stress fractures in 10 years and then it wasn't until we moved um, house and it was just I mean it was still an option, but I had to drive to the trails. So it was just became harder and harder to run on trail or soft surfaces or grass. But I started running on pavement, like probably nine runs out of 10, I would run on a footpath on cement footpath and didn't get a stress fracture for 10 years. Your body will adapt to what you give it. If you give it at a slow enough rate and progress, you know, patiently, then your body will adapt. And I found that with with my bone injuries. You know, I I, I as I said, I I um, trained on cement for ten years and didn't get a stress fracture, didn't get a bony injury, and um, that's because I allowed my body to adapt slowly to the surface that I was going to be running on each and every day. And I ran the highest mileage that I've ever run during those years, and um, had the biggest success in my athletic career. So it's not all about um, just trying to find the softer surface that you can it's about letting your body adapt to what you're about to give it and strengthening your body um, in the gym as you said as you touched on um strengthening your muscles so that you can um be strong enough to um cope with the demands of the load that you're going to give it
0: yeah exactly and it's relative to that load everything's relative you know mm-hmm. it's if you're an elite runner there's a high capacity that you need isn't there High strength.
2: Yeah. Um, Do you want to um, talk about the science behind the the bone?
0: Yeah, bones are. Oh gosh, bones. Well, firstly, they're living, breathing tissues, which I think we all can be guilty of forgetting of ignoring. You know, we just think that they're just there and our yeah, we just hang off them. But uh, <laughs> we, I mean, there's an element we've got to all steward our bone health across our lives, and it starts with our children. Uh, I've got four and seven-year-old girls and as a physio, the physio in me is delighted when I see them jumping off things and landing because we know that those high forces in development can be positive for their bone health. Um, my youngest likes dairy and she hooks down the cheese. My eldest is like me and doesn't like the smell of it and everything else. So um, so bone health, probably the first thing there, guys, would be it's something we really need to keep it in our minds, whether we're pursuing athletic endeavors or not across our lifespan. Um, and I think it's 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 one of the biggest impact is on overall cost to society with osteoporotic, crush, uh, osteoporotic fractures of the hip and the early causes of death in later life. But it doesn't get a lot of airtime uh, for, for the impact that it has. And the sad thing is, a lot of the cases in later years could have been really change throughout someone's lifespan if there had been early detection of bone health issues. So when I talk about bone health issues, I mean uh bone density issues. Uh, we all hit peak bone mass at circa uh 20, you know, in our early 20s. Uh and then really we sort of trade off that bone density across our lifespan. So uh we will experience a drop and for women it's postmenopause quite significantly. For men, it starts to happen really post 50 uh, women do drop off faster than men with that rate. But then that's something that I've seen people forget is that males can have bone density issues across their lifespan as well. Mm. Um, I, for one of those, which is a large genetic streak on the males of my family. And I remember getting a bone density check of my spine at 36, just as an academic exercise. Cause I just thought it'd be interesting and really falling <laughs> off the as, table. As you do. Well, nearly falling off the table. Well, I had a 40-year-old triathlete who was on the treatment table and uh, super fit, awesome guy, and his rib fractured on the treatment table through no, nothing outrageous from my treatment. Mm. It didn't add up, but I remember the moment he said, that's a bit sore, and then we got him an MRI and then we found a fractured rib, and I'm like, wow, a 40-year-old can have osteoporosis? Mm. Um and as a practitioner, sad to say, 10 years in or whatever it was at the time, I thought, how many really appreciating this now? And since then, I've mm. done a heck of a lot of reading in, in the literature and different things and uh, seen lots of cases of, of male athletes that have bone density issues across their athletic years and beyond. So bones are living breathing tissue and we can do things to help it along or things to mm. not help it along would be the summary.
1: Yeah and and what would some of the most actionable things be that what what things can we do and what things can we maybe avoid doing to improve our bone health
0: Yeah it's great uh firstly fueling uh so fuel it's not my adage it's uh, I believe it it's the the maxim that Team Sky the highly successful cycling team uh British cycling team used with Chris Froome etc and that was their head dietitian slash nutritionist uh, who said fuel for the work required so i think we can lose sight of that when we're going to bed our busy days whether that's working jobs or parenting children or whatever the responsibilities are but whether we're an elite athlete or recreational it's simple math if we double our training minutes or time we need to be mindful that we're doubling our fuel intake mm. but often we eat habitually So in a runner's case, we might go from 20 kilometers a week running to 60. And psychologically that might not be that great a change for a runner, but the fuel demands have changed. So there's a threefold increase in caloric intake required there Mm -hmm. uh, in broad sense. So the reason fueling is so important is because if we don't have the fuel on board to drive our training, then uh, our body starts to tap into that reservoir of bone in in, Mm -hmm. in very simple terms. So, that's something I find these days in my work uh, to be in endurance sports in nearly all episodes of bone stress. It's often a factor that, or it's nearly always a factor that needs to be addressed. And that fueling can be intentionally restricted or unintentionally restricted. Intentionally can be, um, I've got several patients at the moment working through eating disorders with their sport. Mm. And that's a, you know, that's a, it's a difficult one because it's not a straightforward process. And then there's other athletes who, so in eating disorders is in purposely restricting calories. Mm. Uh, And then there's athletes who just aren't aware that like kind of, I wasn't for 10 years that working all day, every day, early to late plus training at extreme sides of the day with skipping lunch because you're busy Mm. might not get you where you want to get you. So that was sort of the unintentionally under fueled side. So Fueling is huge. Yeah. Secondly, strength and conditioning across our lifespan. Uh, I know we said that we can do a lot at home uh, if we're stuck in COVID mm-hmm. and can't get to gyms, but there isn't a person on the planet that wouldn't benefit from strength and conditioning for their bone health through their mm-hmm. lifespan. And we know the science shows us that that tends to be well, – or it doesn't tend to be. It needs to be heavy, heavy loads, so sort of four to six uh, – sorry, four sets of six to eight reps, for example – And we know that bones, so our spines respond best to heavy squats, heavy deadlifts, strict press, which is just pressing a bar overhead and things like drop hangs where you're doing a pull up and then you just let yourself fall and sort of purposely thrust yourself into the ground. So there's Mm. some key exercises that ideally I'd love to see everyone doing, whether they've had density issues or not across the years, Mm. we all need to look after our bones.
2: Yeah, I've been doing those exercises that you gave me, um, Brad. Jumping off the kitchen bench with straight legs. Um, kids love it. The kids love it. They've been told that they're not allowed to do it, but Mummy's um, allowed to do two sets of fifteen.
0: <laughs> perfect, perfect. And uh, and then you can strap the weight on. Elsie as an X progression, but that that right. came out of a study looking at increasing bone density of developing kids that have had bone issues. Uh, simple counter movement jumps. So there's a lot that can be done. So if people get nothing more out of this than thinking about their bones and I'm surprised at how many people may come to see someone like myself or any of the team in this clinic who can be later on in years and you ask if they've had a bone density check and many are like, Oh no, probably a good idea, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And unfortunately often they've probably missed two decades of interventions that they may be able to have had
1: that might've made a big difference.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So
1: you're never too young to get a bone density check would be my yeah. suggestion. Great. And um, I wanted to ask you on that, on the topic of sort of proactive or preventative sort of um, health practices, what what checks would you recommend that we all do? Obviously, if we take bone density, getting a bone density scan as a as a sort of one that you're never too young to go and do, um, what else would you think people would really benefit from checking in on from time to time?
0: Yeah, good question. And just a caveat, sorry, Rory, Um. People are too young to get one if they're probably sub twenty. Okay. So sorry, I should have added that on uh, awesome. in nice. case I right. had a teenage, unless there's a specific need, uh, yeah. bone stress history, etc. But it's a bit tricky for, uh, sometimes the bone density sub twenty. So right. sorry, my correction. Um, but yeah, other other key key prevention strategies would be. It is difficult in the sense that. There's benchmarks for strength, but they're always relative to the demands for that individual. So the benchmarks for strength for sprinting or, you know, tennis would be very different to the benchmarks for endurance running. Um, but you know, people should be able to do, in excluding pathology or trauma to a shoulder or something. But people should be able to do push-ups right throughout their life, for example. Yeah, really, people should be able to pull their body weight up at least a couple of times throughout their life. Now, Mm. I don't know where the cutoff point at that is, but we're talking well into Mm. life. Um, Those basic movement patterns, I think we give ourselves sometimes leave passes on a few of those things Mm. because we all get busy and it's just not on on our immediate to-do list. But it sort of comes back to that strength is the mother of all. Like if we lose strength, we're really going to struggle. And people often make a, you know, uh, put mobility up in lights that they're worried about their mobility loss as they mature. But that's very secondary to the strength loss mm. because it's not the mobility loss that's going to give someone a difficult time getting up off a chair or out of a car with a sore knee. It's the strength loss. So preventative strategies seems a little bit like a repetitive uh, message, Rory but Elsie, but would be just, do strength work of some kind. If you can't get to a gym, then jump on the ground and do push-ups. Push-ups are one of the best shoulder rehab exercises ever, ever known.
1: Yeah, yeah, awesome. Brad, you've left us with some really actionable recommendations around um, improving our physical health and performance. So we've got, you know, uh, assess our bone health if we're over over 20, and particularly as we sort of for those individuals as we get older. Um, we've got invest in strength training and move regularly if we're, we're moving at home and and really trusting the body's ability to adapt you know and and that actually we can make great gains over time if we intelligently feed it feed the body so that it can adapt are there any final recommendations that you'd want to add um, so that listeners can improve their physical health and well-being
0: yeah i' just add on there rory briefly that wherever people are with their journey, whether they're injured or bothered by a niggle or, you know, just wanting to perform better that we can progress. And you touched on it by, you know, mentioning that we can adapt and that progression doesn't need to take an inordinate amount of time uh, or sometimes effort Uh, often requires consistent application of time and effort, but it doesn't have to be complex. Um, And there's this neuroscience adage that comes from Queensland And uh, Ebony Rio, a tendon researcher, shared it on the Physical Performance Show. And that's that every cell in our body can adapt until the day we die. Every cell Mm. in our body is capable of adapting. So I think sometimes when we do get low and we lose a bit of hope and and, uh, and, and vision for the future because of our physical health, it's good to remind ourselves of that. Every cell Mm. can adapt. It's such a powerful message. So Mm. let's not let our minds limit what our physiology is able to do
2: oh my drop, drop.
1: <laughs> love oh that. Gosh. if we only we had a mic we could drop <laughs> brad thank you very much for coming on the show um you know as a as a person you've got a real positivity about you that um as we discussed is such an important part of, of a, being a practitioner you know and, and helping people and helping professionals that you bring hope to people when you when you um, work with them i know that's what Aloise has, has discussed as a part of what you know the benefit of working with you is and your positivity about individual's capacity to adapt and to change and to grow i, I think is really compelling and helps us to reflect on the fact that actually yeah we do have more control than we might think <laughs> around our health and that it actually can be good it can get better you know and and whatever we're facing right now whether it's an injury or you know a setback of some kind that the body's got an amazing ability to adapt and as people we've got amazing um, capabilities to find ways forward and, and adapt ourselves so thanks for, for sort of breathing that hope into the physical health of of us um certainly myself and, and people listening um and and secondly you know your your wisdom around taking the science and making it so clear and so Thoughtful and practical, I think is, is such a, a great feature of yours that you, you know, you you're able to kind of take something like muscle propulsion and, and how the how the body absorbs force and how it reacts and just make it super actionable um, for people. So I highly recommend that people um, follow your content, they follow your show, the physical performance show, for more in-depth discussions like this about um, about physical health and performance. Um, and also, if they're lucky enough to live in your area, that if when, if and when they need treatment, they can they can come and check you out. Hey, but,
2: Brad does phone phone consultations as well, so it doesn't matter where you live.
1: Sign me up. um <laughs> <laughs> So hopefully not.
2: <laughs> no, because I'll be on the the phone will be engaged because I'll be on the phone. <laughs>
0: I said hopefully not, Rory, because hopefully not any assistance. It's but yeah.
2: called, call the Brad Hotline.
1: The Brad Hotline. <laughs> um, that's on the professional side, Brad. But what I'm struck by as a as a person, though, is that you know you're so humble and so honest with how you share about your own um, motivation and your own experiences. And I think the authenticity that is there and and, and wrapped up in, in how you go about what you do is. It just it makes you such a trusted source of information you know because we know that what you say is well thought through it's honest and it's from a place of genuine care um and so thank you very much for sharing your wisdom with us um and you know we we wish we could have talked to you for longer but we'll have to maybe look at a part two down the track special edition
2: yeah
0: (laughs) thank you guys keep up the great work and uh I'm a big fan of of both of yours individually. And then you put you to put you both together and it's a powerful force. So thanks very much for the opportunity.
1: Pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you very much. Where can people follow along with your great work and uh, your podcast and your your practical resources that you are putting out into the world?
0: Thanks guys. Uh, Pretty easy to find on socials, just at Brad underscore beer. So that's Twitter and Instagram. Uh, there's a facebook page as well mainly try and post running related endurance sport related content just to instagram because it's just such a fun interactive medium uh or platform and then there's the physical performance show uh obviously just across all players podcast players youtube etc and if anyone you know has a question or just needs a bit of input just shout out on those channels on social uh, there's Pogo Physio, obviously, the clinic I founded here on the Gold Coast, which, as you mentioned, we obviously do sessions in person. But one of the great joys, even pre-COVID, that I find professionally thrilling is being able to connect with people on telehealth or digitally. And in most instances, there's not a solution that can't be found remotely because it's normally coming back to training loads and strength and conditioning prescription. So, yeah, they're the best ways.
2: Yeah. You've also written a book, You Can Run Pain-Free. Um, which I have a, a copy of and um, interestingly enough Sonny keeps walking around with it it's like his favorite book <laughs> he's toddling around with your book I, I took a photo of it the other day I meant to send it to you but I, I will I'll send it to you because it's, it's really cute um, but yes congratulations on your book that was a while ago but it is it is a really great book oh
0: thanks Elsie uh, yeah it's going back seven years at the time of recording and I've been trying to write one for a while now and just finding every excuse to not fulfil it, but uh, one particularly for the Masters athlete, for the Mm. 35-plus runner, because there's a unique set of needs and challenges. So hopefully sometime that can see the light of day.
2: (laughs) Yeah.
1: Stay tuned, and if you're not a Masters athlete now, by the time Brad does the book, (laughs) you'll (laughs) be
2: That'll be you. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) That'll be Rory.
0: Hang in there, Rory. Yeah, exactly. Thanks, Brad.
2: Thanks so much, Brad.